welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Dr. Steph Philbane. Steph is a prolific senior researcher at the University of Melbourne, primarily interested in anterior cruciate ligament, otherwise known as ACL, injury, where she leads a research team that is broadly interested in improving the outcomes for individuals who sustain an ACL injury. Steph's research to date has already garnered over 1,300 citations, and this does not even include her latest publication on ACL healing, which will probably break the internet. This podcast closely follows the publication of Steph's landmark paper in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which reports the findings of ACL healing in the Canoon trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010. Traditionally, the ACL has been thought of as physiologically incapable of healing, necessitating the surgical reconstruction of this injured ligament to achieve any functional stability of the knee, and thus have any hope of returning to your Monday night netball game or Thursday night five-a-side soccer match. However, emerging evidence from Steph and her colleagues flips this dogmatic belief on its head. If you treat people with ACL injury or are interested in your favorite sports person's ACL recovery, or have had an ACL injury yourself, then this is an episode you probably shouldn't miss. Before we start the podcast, a quick note from our sponsor, Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. It's great for busy physios, which is why it's an endorsed partner of the Australian Physiotherapy Association and the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy in the UK. You'll find everything you need to run a successful physio practice in one place, like treatment notes, digital forms, online booking tools, customizable body charts, and much more. Clinico meets privacy legislation for Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada. So wherever you're based, Clinico will help keep you compliant. Charitable donations and giving back are a big part of Clinico. A minimum of 2% of all Clinico subscriptions are donated to charity each month which means more than 1 million Australian dollars in total has been donated since Clinico was founded. Shoulder Physio podcast listeners can get 60 days for free. Signing up takes less time than this message. Visit clinico.com forward slash shoulder hyphen physio. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Dr. Steph Philbay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Shoulder Physio podcast. Today, I'm thrilled, excited to be joined by Stephanie Philbay. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. I'm very excited to be here. So I'll call you Steph, if you don't mind, Stephanie. My sister's yeah. called Stephanie, so uh, I usually call her Steph, so I might slip up. But anyway, I'll call you Steph. <laughs> so, so Steph, I want you to start by introducing yourself to the audience. What's your academic bio? What do you like to do for fun? What's a vaguely normal week look like for you? Sure. Okay. Uh, in terms of a bit of an academic bio, um, I'm a physio by background. I did my PhD in the area of ACL injuries and long-term outcomes with a particular focus on quality of life. Uh, after my PhD, I moved to Oxford in the UK and I was there 
for four years as a senior research associate. I also spent some months living in Denmark and Sweden and set up some research uh, collaborations with some colleagues there that, that I still work with quite regularly. Um, and then I applied for an NHMRC investigator grant and moved back to Melbourne uh, in 2020. And I'm currently a senior research fellow at University of Melbourne. In terms of my research, so I mentioned I'm interested in ACL injury. That's really where my main passion lies. And connecting most of my research is probably optimising outcomes for people that have an ACL injury. Um, I lead a team working on a range of different projects. For example, some things we're working on were um, looking at evaluating current management of ACL injury in Australia. We are developing a patient decision aid to inform patients about ACL injury options. Uh, we're creating some free online training resources for physios and for patients and developing strategies to improve outcomes for people with knee away after ACL injury, uh, as well as some stuff I'm sure we'll discuss today, some work around uh, the potential for ACL rupture to heal and looking at strategies to potentially facilitate healing of ACL rupture. So, yeah, that's some of uh, the research that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, what else was that outside of work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's all about work-life balance, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so finding the time to be active, I think, is really important for me. I've always played a bunch of sports, but it seems um, the older you get, the harder it is to find time to do that. So uh, when I can, I do a bit of CrossFit and other things like tennis, uh, Aussie rules, water sports, skiing, even basketball. Yeah, lots of different things. I also enjoy being creative, so like painting and drawing, if I have the time. I have a, a one-year-old daughter, so most of my time is taken up spending time with her, which is great. So in terms of a, a creative outlet, we've been uh, mainly making animals out of, I don't know if you've seen this, soft, colourful clay. Yeah, I have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so making lots of, you know, random objects and animals out of that, which has been lots of fun. Cool. Yes. Do you, do, you, do you find yourself applying your creative side into your scientific side with your research? Yeah, I think creativity really drives me and it's what I really enjoy. In terms of research, um, I think you can be creative in, in idea generating, mm. so in coming up with research ideas. You can be creative in disseminating findings, so through infographics or creating um, presentation slides. Um, and also in an area that I'm moving into now is creating actually educational resources and decision aids for clinicians and patients. Um, so how do they look? How can you be really engaging? And how can you be creative in the way that you um, that you translate, you know, your research findings into current practice? So, yeah, I think there is some avenues for creativity in, in a, a research career. Yeah. Yeah, totally. How did you, how did you end up in Oxford? And in Europe, doing some research, that's a, that's a fascinating career tra trajectory. How did that all work out? Um, so most of my things that have happened in my career is generally being in the right place at the right time and, and meeting the right people. Um, often over a couple of glasses of wine at a, at a conference. So at Oxford came from meeting uh, some researchers from Oxford at a conference in Seattle, an osteoarthritis conference, which led to a three-month fellowship which then led to a four-month, uh, four-year position. I actually moved over intending to be there for three for three months, but it, yeah, it just <laughs> kept going, and I stayed there for a lot longer. Cool. And what was your experience like there? Yeah, terrific. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great. It, it is really good to get experience of research at different institutions, and 
um, as well as I mentioned Sweden and Denmark, because there are such great physio researchers, OA, ACL researchers out there. So I think forming a network and working together, you know, it's one of the most rewarding aspects of, of research, the people you meet and the people you get to work with. Absolutely. Have you injured your ACL before, Steph? Yes, I have. Yeah, yes. all right. So Several did that times. inspire your interest in this particular injury? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was already studying physio when I first ruptured my ACL and had a reconstruction. I then re-ruptured it and had a revision surgery. And then I re-ruptured it again. And I wow. didn't have a second revision surgery. So I, okay. I guess I am ACL deficient. Um also got really damaged meniscus and I've got moderate signs of osteoarthritis as well. So, <laughs> yeah, so I do have some of my own experiences when it comes to ACL injury management um, and osteoarthritis after ACL injury as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your lived experience is kind of, is, is really important here, not just from, because you're, I guess you're kind of invested personally in the outcome of your research. That must be a fascinating position to be in can you find do you find yourself kind of when you're doing the research applying this to how you're managing your own kind of knee and and also how you would manage possibly your child's hope hope she doesn't have an ACL injury one day but she might or maybe your family yeah I mean it is a bit of a motivation in terms of you know knowing what I now know and I didn't know then Mm. I can look back and see the things that I wish were different you know the information I wish I was given Um, and the options or how I wish they were presented at the time and what I didn't know then. But in terms of current experience, it is being, you know, a fairly young adult with osteoarthritis that really wants to lead an active lifestyle, which is a lot of people post-ACL injury. So actually some of the work we're working on is in that space and it's looking at how we can find satisfying sport or forms of physical activity for these people who often have competitive needs and have mm. taken part in sports after their lives. And I think I have some you know, personal experience in that as well. Um, and I'm facing some of those challenges in terms of wanting to be active but having a lot of knee pain and um, poor knee function at the same time. Yeah, that's cool. That's, yeah. a, that's a really interesting dimension um, that you bring to the table there with your research. So that's, that's I didn't know that, so that's really cool. <laughs> All right, so let's get on to the uh, the the nitty gritty of the of the conversation. So the ACL rupture is is about as sexy as a topic I reckon you can get in musculoskeletal, orthopedics, sports medicine. For some reason, probably because football players get it, and it's a it's an interesting mechanism, and it's an interesting recovery, and it takes a year, so it gets a lot of press coverage usually to get back um, after an ACL injury. I was taught, and I basically didn't even challenge this assumption that the ACL didn't heal for basically the first 10 years of my career as a physiotherapist, which which might say more about me than anything. But the last few years, there's been some evidence that comes in that sort of challenges culminating in your fabulous paper, uh, which has just come out quite recently in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So can you tell us about the healing capacity of the ACL uh, with a, perhaps a reference to your fabulous paper, which you've just published? Sure. Yeah, and I think uh, I was also taught that, you know, as a physio, I remember actually that we were taught uh, the ACL, it's intracapsular, when it ruptures, you know, the torn ends get bathed in synovial fluid, so they can't meet and it doesn't heal on its own. Um, and I kind of do remember being taught that and 
when we started discussing this, I was really surprised when I looked into the literature how few studies had looked at this mm. and the limitations of those studies because um, it seems quite a pertinent question that you'd think um, we should have put quite a, a lot of attention into in terms of research. And that was, yeah, the main rationale for looking at this within the Canoon randomised controlled trial. So what we found is that... Oh, is it the Canoon? Sorry, I, I can't be Canon. Okay, Canoon, oh, all right. Well, yeah. it, it could be the Canon. Yeah, yeah. it's Swedish, yeah. but yeah. it's just an acronym. It's yeah. an acronym. K- K-A-N-O-N <laughs> for anyone listening. All right, cool. Yeah, we tend to call it the Canoon, but yep. I'm sure you can call it Canon if let's, you like. Let's go with Canoon. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, so if you're familiar with that trial, um, the trial involved randomising people with acute ACL rupture to either management with an early ACL reconstruction followed by rehabilitation or randomization to initial rehab where people could then choose to have an optional delayed surgery after trying rehab if they wanted. And about half the people did end up having a delayed surgery in that arm. So what we did is we looked at the MRIs that were taken across a variety of time points. So baseline, three months, 12 months, two years, and uh, five years. And we looked at the degree of healing of the ACL and MRI. Um, So what we found in those randomized to rehab and optional surgery, at least one in three people had a healed ACL on MRI two-year follow-up. So I say at least because that's assuming that those who had delayed surgery had a non-healed ACL uh, at the time of delayed surgery, which we don't really know. So that's a, a, uh, a conservative estimate is at least one in three. And then when we looked particularly in those people who were only managed with rehab, who didn't decide to have surgery, 53% had a healed ACL on two-year MRI and 56% on five-year MRI. But one of the big questions is, you know, is what we're seeing on MRI, does that even relate to knee function? Does it even Mm. represent ACL healing? So it was interesting that we found that those with a healed ACL on MRI reported better patient-reported outcomes in terms of sport and recreational function and quality of life compared to those with no healing, but also compared to those randomised to early ACL reconstruction and those who had delayed surgery. Yeah, we are... Another kind of interesting finding that I might mention is that although we looked at two years as the primary outcome, most people who had signs of healing, it was apparent as early as three months on MRI. Um, I think, you know, that's quite interesting. And also those who had delayed ACL reconstruction, very few of them had any signs of healing on three-month MRI. Mm. So, you know, we put a lot of attention into trying to predict who might be a COPA with, with rehab and it's quite possible that the healing status has something to do with that. So, okay, so, so much I want to investigate there. <laughs> so can you can you just briefly comment on how you defined healing in, in the in the paper or sure. signs of healing? Sure, yeah, because there wasn't a lot of, you know, guidance around this. It is a mm. relative emerging area of research. So we used the ACL OAS MRI grading system. Um, graded by radiologists, and that has an item that assesses the continuity of an ACL. So typically it's used at baseline, like after an acute injury, where a fully ruptured ACL has a grade three, which includes complete discontinuity of fibres. So then a grade zero represents basically a normal appearance, like an uninjured ACL. So full continuity fibres, normal thickness, a normal signal and MRI. Um, And then we have grade one, which is continuous continuity of fibres, but it can be um, thickened or have an increased signal. 
And then a grade two, which is continuous, but it may be thinned or elongated. Um, so yeah, so for this study, we we considered any continuity of fibers, grade zero to two, to represent a degree of healing. Uh, and we compared that with outcomes with grade three. Yeah, does that make sense? So what we what we're referring to is really continuity of ACL fibers. Yep. Um, but they didn't all look exactly the same in terms of uh, their appearance. Okay. Yeah, you're leading me off track here in a good way. Um, I just want to continue down that road a little bit. Do do those who had better healing, like a like a like a one, for example, in terms of the continuity of healing, had had better outcomes than the two, for for example, or? Yeah. So that that's an important question, yeah. and we couldn't answer that within this particular study because there wasn't enough people yeah. or there wasn't enough Same spread across people. those grades. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we couldn't look at it within this, but we have looked at this uh, in a different study, okay. uh, cross, cross bracing protocol. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. we might we might go into a bit of detail around that, but um, that gives us a bit of an idea about what those different grades might tell us. Yeah, cool. Okay, we'll go there. We'll go there soon. I want to just hang around here for a little bit. Um, the the three months milestone is interesting. So ACL healing was observed as as early as three months. A, a hypothetical question for you, you probably don't have a definite answer because it's such a young and emerging area. How long theoretically could we give someone to heal if they want to take a wait and see non-surgical approach? After a year, if we see no signs of healing, should we perhaps pull the pin? How, how long would we give it there from, from your opinion? Yeah, and it would only be an opinion because we don't have the research yet. You know, we need very large samples to understand that kind of thing and look at and to be able to follow it at multiple time points with MRI, which is quite costly. So we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Hypothetically, um, you know, certainly when we're applying the cross-bracing protocol, we're thinking like there's a, an optimal window potentially to facilitate healing as there is with a lot of injuries. Um, you know, if you haven't, if let's talk about it in terms of continuity of fibers, if those, if you're still got a full rupture and those ruptured ends of the ACL haven't met at six months after injury, are they then likely to, you know, to regain continuity at 12 months? Probably not. Um, there's some evidence actually showing that uh, the uh, ruptured end can cause like a stump can grow mm. over the edge of the fibers and then it's much less likely to probably heal. So, yeah, so my opinion would be I think what we may find is that there may be quite an early window where if no signs of healing have happened, we don't know this yet, but it, it may be around three to six months that very few people may go on then to to experience ACL healing. Yeah. Just an opinion, though. We need the research. Yeah. Cool. Everything yeah. we say here is uh, is 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 going to be tainted with uncertainty, possibly. So sure. let's, let's, <laughs> let's just preface that. Okay, okay. Cool. So so three months, we do see signs of healing. In terms of how long we should wait, we don't know. Um, but but it, would it, would it be rarer, in your opinion, again? And I think you've just probably alluded to this that if somebody has no signs of healing at, at three months, it that person may struggle to show any signs of healing later on down the line. Yeah. I mean, maybe three months is too early, right? But I do think yeah. there's likely a window. And um, when we discuss a, a bracing protocol, that may be a bit different because it kind of could potentially accelerate the healing mm. response compared to just rehab. 
Yes. So, no, I, I think if there's some continuity of fibres have been restored at three months, then that could potentially continue along a, a spectrum of healing mm. in a positive direction. Um, but we don't yet know if there's no healing at three months, whether that person can go on to have healing. But mm. what we do know is from the canoe trial, that person may be more likely to opt for a delayed surgery. Yeah. Which, you know, an interesting thing about the canoe trial is that they were blinded to their healing status. It wasn't something they were aware of. So that decision to have delayed surgery had nothing to do with being told you have healing or you don't have your ACL. It's likely driven by knee function, uh, symptoms and other factors. Yeah, no, that blinding design is is is, is, a, is a real feature of the study. Um, okay, so, okay, that's healing. Actually, one more question on healing. Um, I've got a million more questions on healing. What am I talking about? But for <laughs> this particular topic, um, so baseline predictors of who may heal. Now, again, I assume you don't have a definite answer here. Can we speculate? Can we hypothesize? Can we conjecture some possible baseline predictors of, of who may heal? Does age come into it? Does sex or gender come into it? Where, where, where do we go from there? Hmm. Yeah, so this is a really important question, I think, with potential really important clinical implications. Firstly, we don't have the research yet. Um, we're actually planning a study to look at this, so to look at predictors of who will go on to heal and, and greater healing. Um, we're designing it around the bracing protocol. But specifically in relation to what we can see on MRI in terms of the nature of the ACL graft and other variables, as well as some patient characteristics. So, yes, we want to look at age, uh, hypermobility, um, the type of injury. Clinically, so this is not yet research-based, we are seeing some patterns. So in terms of the bracing protocol, there's now been 260 patients that have been managed by um, primarily by Tom Cross and his team in Sydney. And within those, we're seeing some, I will say, just clinical observations at the moment because um, we're planning on investigating that soon um, in a study, but some things that may be important could relate to the nature of the ACL rupture, um, so how disrupted the fibres are and where they're sitting in the intercondylar notch. Um, so are they flipped over? Are they actually displaced and sitting outside of the intercondylar notch? Within the paper that's currently under review, we found quite a different proportion in terms of partial avulsions at the femoral origin of the ACL. So it could be that those with a partial femoral avulsion may be less likely to experience healing. Again, we don't know yet, but um, a higher proportion with partial avulsions had a non-heal um, within that bracing protocol. And other things that may be important is like the gap distance between the ACLs. So when you're looking at the MRI, are the torn ends quite separated? Is one of the ends retracted or are they closer together? Yeah, there's, a, there's lots of potential options. So we really do want to do research in this area and we're planning that study at the moment. Awesome. Yeah, don't give too much away. I just wanted to dig in there a little bit. Um, <laughs> in terms of a healed ACL or, or an ACL rupture that shows signs of healing, in terms of if we compare that ACL that shows signs of healing to its pre-injured state, morphologically and functionally, how does that... ACL compared to the uninjured ACL. I, again, I don't, I don't know if you you can compare, but it, can we treat these healed ACLs 
like an uninjured ACL or do they not function to that extent? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, again, another really important question. Okay. <laughs> In terms of the morphology, we don't know yet. Yeah. So the, the best thing or the closest thing we have at the moment that we've looked at is how that can relate to patient reported outcomes, to return to sport, to re-injury rates, mm. and how they can compare with reconstruction. Um, knee laxity measures, so the Lockman's test, pivot ship test, uh, and, yeah, patients' perceptions of knee stability as well and their ability to function with the knee. So they're the things we've looked at, but, yeah, which is all we really have in terms of data at the moment, but there will likely need to be studies to look at the morphology and other things. Although the ACL's ruptured, so it's not really a fair comparison to compare that to an uninjured ACL. Because if we compare it to current treatment where around 90% of people in Australia have ACL reconstruction, then I guess we should be comparing it to the integrity and um, the strength of an ACL graft mm. and the function of that graft. Sure. That's the likely comparison. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so what, is that, what is that comparison between a, a healed ACL and a surgical graft, do you think? Oh, we, yeah. There's, there would have to be a lot of... We just don't have the research yet to yeah. answer that. Yeah. Um, again, if we look at the Canoon trial, um, activity levels were similar, self-reported sport and recreational function was similar, and, mm. and knee-related quality of life was similar. The proportion that was satisfied with their current knee state was higher with ACL healing than it was with ACL reconstruction. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we don't know. I mean, I think that there's a bit of research now looking at the graph maturity and the timeline for graph maturity after an ACL reconstruction, and it may take a lot longer than 12 months. So at that point of returning to sport, um, the graft may be immature in a lot of cases. I think even with healing of uh, of a natural ACL, it may take some time for re-ligamentization, ligamentization and other processes to happen. So I don't suggest, you know, three months, oh, there's a continuous ACL, go back to sport. You know, I think that would probably course, be pretty yeah. irresponsible. Yeah. And we'll need a bit of work around understanding, you know, if it if it turns out that what we see on MRI does relate closely enough to function, then we'll need a bit of work and research to understand timelines for when it's safe to return to running or sport or other activities. Yeah, totally. There's a difference between having a functional knee and having, you know, a functional ACL. Right. And so I think that's an important distinction. You can possibly you can get back to activity if, if you've got a, a lax ACL on Lockman testing or pivot shift testing or using an arthrometer. But functionally, the knee does what you want it to do. And that's possibly all that matters. I, I want to equate that to shoulder dislocations or recurrent shoulder dislocations, where if you go down a surgical pathway, and get a stabilization, you'll probably have less recurrent shoulder dislocations, but quality of life outcomes and often participation in valued activity is not different between the two groups, between a non-surgical and a surgical approach. So if you're really reductionist and myopic in, in, in your outcome of, well, is it lax or not lax, or do they dislocate or not dislocate, surgery might be better, but functionally and quality of life and patient acceptable symptom state, which is what you investigated, might be better in the non-surgical or at least comparable. Yeah, exactly. And in the ACL literature, knee laxity, as is tested by, you know, passively by a clinician, Lockman's or pivot shift, is poorly correlated with functional stability. So 
Considering that poor correlation, I think it's functional stability that matters most. Um, there's also not great research to show an association between uh, increased knee laxity and OA or poor outcomes, but there is research suggesting that episodes of giving way um, or episodes of instability are related to poorer knee health in the long term. So I think that's the, that's the uh, measure that matters most is whether the knee is going to be functionally stable. Total agreement, total agreement. Let's talk about this cross-bracing protocol that you just referenced and alluded to a moment ago uh, with Tom Cross. I've I've not read a ton about it and you mentioned that there is a paper under review. So can you just introduce me and the audience to what this cross-bracing protocol is? Sure. And you've probably not read a ton about it because it isn't published yet. Um, it's just got, by word of mouth, it's spread quite a bit um, yeah. prior to publication, but it is under review at the moment. So hopefully that won't be too far away. And we will be publishing the full protocol in detail, including physio exercises um, with the publication that will be available hopefully soon. We did publish a conference abstract, which is out there now, but, you know, it only provides a very brief snippet of the larger paper. So I think it is probably worth waiting for. Uh, but to tell you a bit about it, okay, so the cross-bracing protocol, it attempts to help to facilitate healing of ACL rupture by initially immobilising the knee at 90 degrees flexion in a brace uh, for 24-7 for four weeks initially. And the rationale behind that was that there's evidence to suggest that at 90 degrees and greater of flexion, uh, the torn ends, like I can use my hands here, can I? The torn ends of the ACL are in closer proximity um, at greater degrees of knee flexion. So using the orthopedic principles similar to reduction and fixation, it was hypothesised that by bringing those ruptured ends close together and holding them in that position, um, it may be able to facilitate healing of ACL rupture. So it involves, as I mentioned, 90 degrees flexion for four weeks in a brace. And then at weekly increments, the range of motion is increased within the brace um, until full range of motion at 10 weeks and the brace is removed at 12 weeks. Um, it's important to note that that's coupled with standardised physiotherapy throughout the whole brace. So it's not um, being immobile or letting the muscles just atrophy. It involves different exercises within the available range of motion as well as contralateral exercises and upper body exercises and other things, hip exercises as well, and ankle plantar flexion. Um, yeah, so that will all be within the publication, but that's the theory behind it and that's it in a, in a snapshot. Is it non-weight-bearing for 10 weeks as well? No, it's not no. non-weight-bearing. Okay. It's only um, non-weight-bearing with crutches for safety reasons when, yeah. for example, the knee's at 90 degrees, yeah. but people use other... Um, Devices like the, I believe it's the eye walker or a scooter. Yep. You yep. know, so they can yep. get around that way. Um, yep. But as soon as they can have enough range of motion to partially weight bear their own coach to do so, cool. as well, they do exercises within the available range, such as bridges or uh, wall squats and other things as well. Cool. Yeah. So, in terms of our preliminary findings, um, and what we'll be showing in the in the paper that's under review at the moment. So that's just reporting outcomes from the first 80 patients with ACL rupture that were managed with the cross-bracing protocol. And what we found using the same criteria um, for healing as the canoeing trial, the continuity of ACL fibres, a three-month MRI when they took the brace off, 90% had a healed ACL on MRI. Wow. Uh, um, and so we then 
compared outcomes between those with higher grades and lower grades. But the comparison groups were a bit different to Canoe um, because we had fewer people with uh, discontinuous, so 90% had healing. So we actually compared a grade one with a grade two versus three. So that's a continuous ACL um, that could be thickened with increased signal versus a, a discontinuous ACL or a thinned or elongated ACL. So in that comparison, we found that those with higher grades of healing um, had higher return to sport rate, they had better self-reported knee function, better quality of life, and uh, more of them had a normal knee laxity compared to the opposite side. Specifically, 92% um, had returned to sport by 12 months compared to 64% in the other group. 64% is more comparison with rates post-reconstruction. The PROMS, the Lishum and the ACL qual, they were taken at 14 months. And then Lockman, 100%, so all patients who achieved the grade one heel, if you will, had a normal Lockman's compared to the other side. Mm. Um, and 40% with that grade two or three had a normal Lockman's in comparison. Yeah, so, so that's what we've found so far. But as I mentioned now, 260 people have, have been managed with that and we'll be looking at predictors for healing in that group. Um, as well as reporting, you know, rates of healing in that larger number of people. I guess it's important also to acknowledge re-rupture. Um, so of the 80 people, 11 had re-ruptured their ACL. All of those 11 had returned to sport and pivoting sports. And of those, four of those re-ruptured had a grade one heel. But of those four that had re-ruptured, it was either rugby contact injury, AFR contact injury, or two of them were high-speed skiing and cycling accidents. So, mm. yeah. So, I mean, I guess what we would expect, certainly post-reconstruction as well, a higher re-injury rate that's associated with returning to sport. Mm. And because 92% of people with a grade one heel return to sport, you know, we, we are actually going to expect some people to re-injure their ACL. I think what's really interesting actually is um, of those, most of them then decided to have a reconstruction after they retore that ACL. But two people actually wanted to try the brace again for a second time after they ruptured what was previously a mm. continuous ACL and they achieved a heal a second time um, wow. after going through the brace. Wow. Yeah, so cool. I think that's really interesting because, you know, once we have reconstruction, you know, ACL's removed and, and we know revision surgery doesn't have great outcomes, but it's possible that an ACL may be able to heal and rupture multiple times um, without surgery. Wow, I hadn't even thought of that. That's that's a really cool feature. So there's that. I'm just thinking how remarkable the human body is, you know, and for so long I, I doubted it with the ACL and now <laughs> it's healing not once but twice in, in some people. That's so fascinating. And then so the, the four that ruptured in that, um, in the higher grade healing, so two were contact um, and the other two were high speed kind of incidents. Is that Ac what you said? Yeah, accidents. accidents yeah. yeah, so falling off a bike at high speed and a skiing accident um, okay. at quite high speed as well, yeah. And 90-odd percent healed and 90-odd percent went back to their pre-injury level of sport? So that's... Sorry, it, it is quite complicated just talking about it without being able to show you something, but um, in terms of the grade one. So that was with a grade one heel at three months as well, which is quite early. Um, we think three months is probably too early for a grade zero heel. That would be mm. representing an uninjured ACL, completely normal appearance. 
um, which some people have progressed to by six months. Oh, okay, but, cool. Yeah, but that grade one, that grade one here was associated with 92% of those people returned to sport um, and they reported better patient-reported outcomes and all of them had a normal Lockman's test compared to the contralateral leg, yeah. Yeah, well, that's a that's a grade one heel is a high degree of healing. So you can get back to a grade zero looking ACL on an MRI after a rupture. Yeah, we found that in, in the canoe as well. But I would say the cavity is using the currently available grading criteria. <laughs> you know, that's something we're exploring as well is potentially looking at new ways of classifying ACL um, and looking at new features of the ACL in terms of healing. Because it's not something we've looked at before, there's no specific scale that was developed just for that purpose. So we don't really know what it is we need to look for. And in, in what way is what we're seeing on MRI related to differences in e-function in terms of the spectrum of healing? Uh, we don't know yet. So Yeah, for sure. But what's interesting, sorry, to tie back in with one of your earlier questions, is it difference in comparison here? So in the canoe, we found that those with still a ruptured ACL had worse outcomes than those with grade zero, one, or two. But in this study, we found actually difference between largely grade one and grade two. So that does suggest, you know, the more normal the appearance, the better the function and the outcome. The better the healing, the better the outcome, yeah. Okay, so have you have you embedded a qualitative study into this cross-bracing protocol to figure out how people experience being stuck in a 90 degrees bracing for a period of time? Yeah, so this was not a planned question, but we have. Yeah, we've done that. And we're just finalizing the analysis. Oh, really? okay. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted to, you know, explore their experiences, um, explore the acceptability of the brace, the challenges, the their feelings around taking that risk, I guess, uh, trying an untested treatment with the potential that your ACL may or may not heal. Mm. Um, and anecdotally, what we're finding, it's not finalized yet or published, is that people are, are really happy to take that risk and to take that, you know, three months in the brace or initial four weeks at 90 degrees flexion with the chance that it may heal. It was interesting that several people had been through an ACL reconstruction on their opposite knee some time ago. So they had that comparison. You know, they, they've been through surgery and rehab and then they've been through the bracing protocol as well. Mm. Um, so I think the insights from those people are going to be particularly interesting. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading that too because that that will have such clinical implications, I think, when you're talking to patients about this, how they're going to experience this brace, so on and so forth. It sounds it sounds horrific, actually, to have your knee flexed to 90 degrees for, for four weeks, but there's two people who chose to go. There's two sadistic people who chose to do it again. That's that's So there you go. So it's not totally horrible by the sounds of it. <laughs> no, I think they, they learn to adapt. Um, yeah. Like some people, one patient chose to use a wheelchair to get around yeah. and these knee scooters and other tools to help you get around during those first first four weeks. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's, yeah, as I mentioned, so valuable. Someone that has been through their alternative, say, surgery and has been through that bracing protocol, how does that compare, you know? How does mm. the burden on you and the burden on your mobility and your function and your participation in activities during that time, um, how, how do they compare? I think it's going to be quite interesting to look at. Hundred percent. Evidence-based medicine and practice goes beyond RCTs and healing on MRIs. You know, what are these people's lives like when they're going through this injury? So that's a really a worthwhile uh, pursuit. So congrats for that. A lot of people forget about qualitative studies 
All right. I don't want to take up too much of your time, Steph. I could talk to you all day. I've got a couple more questions. Let's, I just want you to summarize basically what, what are the clinical implications of all this research? The ACL can heal. The better the ACL healing, possibly the better the outcomes. ACL surgery might not be better than a non-operative approach to ACL rupture. How do we take all of this information that we're seeing emerging in the literature and apply it to our N equals one patient in front of us from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's important to mention that even before this research relating to ACL healing, the best available evidence, so two clinical trials, showed similar outcomes on average compared to ACL reconstruction and initial management with rehabilitation. And that was before we've even considered or looked at ACL healing. Um, we know that some people will start rehabilitation, but they will then benefit from surgery. And those people who then cross over and have surgery have similar outcomes to people who have early surgery. Um, oh. Some evidence suggests they can even have better outcomes because prehabilitation or having a period of rehab, of strengthening, of allowing the knee to come down has been associated with better outcomes post-surgery. So in that regard, there's kind of nothing to lose for a lot of people. Timing can be important. So if you do try rehab but decide to have surgery, you've added a few months onto your total, you know, your total rehab timeline, assuming, say, that you make that decision at three months. But if you go on and make that decision at six months or later, then it is going to add to the overall timeline that you can get back to sports and other activities. I want to, I want um, to emphasize that. That's a really yeah. crucial point. So even if you choose to go down a non-surgical route initially, and then you change your mind at some point down the line, three months, six months, whatever it may be, that's not associated with negative clinical outcomes if you change your mind and then choose to have surgery. In fact, it might be associated with better outcomes. Is that, have I misinterpreted what you're saying there or is that? So the, the clinical trials, so say the Canoon trial found no difference in outcomes between those that started rehab and decided to have delayed surgery those that stayed with rehab and those with early reconstruction. And that was a wide range of outcomes at both two and five year follow-up. Um, there's a different body of research, non-clinical trial data, several studies, at least three that have shown that a period of prehabilitation can improve post-operative outcomes. So yes, but I think the caveat is we know that we need to protect the knee from further injury, in particular, the meniscus. Um, so the meniscus, I think once you injure your meniscus certainly quite badly, you can have poor outcomes, including a high risk of osteoarthritis. So with that rehab arm, it's really important that the rehabilitation is supervised by someone experienced and that it's been done in a safe environment. I mean, you hear stories of people that were doing rehab and they thought, oh, my knee felt great, so I went and played soccer at two months. And oh, it gave way and I injured my meniscus. Um, so that person shouldn't have been playing sport at two months after injury. And it's not necessarily a reflection of um, the quality of rehab, but rather that they were doing something too high risk too soon. And that's similar with reconstruction. You know, you're not going to go and, and play soccer two months after an ACL reconstruction because the graft is likely to, to re-rupture as well. So you do need to protect the knee. I wouldn't suggest doing rehab, being a person who has ongoing instability and just being like, oh, well, I'm just going to play sport and, and damage my knee and let it give way and damage the meniscus because we don't want that for anyone. But trialing rehab in the first instance to see then if you are going to go on and achieve a stable knee to be able to play sport and do the things you want to do, I think is a good option for most people. 
unless you don't have that, you know, three three months to play with. But on the upside, if if you are successful with rehabilitation, you may actually be able to get back to sport sooner than having surgery. Yeah. So it's a bit of a it's a risk. It's a bit of a gamble, really, in terms of the timeline. It could take longer, but it could also be faster. Yeah, just on the timeline there, if you don't mind. Um, you know, this whole thing about it's usually twelve months after ACL surgery and the longer you wait, typically, you know, reconstruction, the, the better it gets. I think if if you wait nine months and beyond or something, the outcomes are a little bit better for re-rupture or something like that. What's the average time to return to play in this cross-bracing protocol, if you don't mind giving away some information on that in terms of what when how long do people take to get back to their sport on average? Um, so that 92% in the ones with um, a grade one heel, which was 50% of people had that grade one and 50% had two or three. Anyway, yeah, that was it's a lot of percentages. Yet we're I know, sorry, it's hard to, <laughs> I know. it is hard to convey. Two studies, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need a bit of a mind map here, don't we, <laughs> to um, assist. But yeah, so that was for a 12 months, yeah. the proportion that had returned to sport at that time point. Okay, yeah. We haven't yet followed these people over a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, but the thing about this data, it was collected as part of clinical practice. So things were learned along the way, you know, so, and some people just returned to sport a lot earlier than others um, against advice from the physio and others because they felt great and their knee felt great. How quick? So, yeah. <laughs> Some of those with re-rupture, I think it was two to three, had returned yeah. to sport earlier than before they were cleared to by the physio, yeah, so yeah. before they'd done the return to play testing, um, and then they had re-injured. Yeah, that's quick. So, <laughs> yes. Anyway, you have to see the full paper for all the yeah. details. But, uh <laughs> Um, yeah, I think there's benefit in delaying return to high-risk sports irrespective of treatment. Yeah. Um, we know with ACL reconstruction, once you rupture your graft, you're at really high risk of having a very poor outcome. Mm. There's a lot of evidence to show that. Revision mm. surgeries don't have great outcomes. And re-revision surgeries, so the third surgery, has even worse outcomes. And that's actually quite common and increasing in frequency in Australia um, with each year is the number of people having revision surgeries. So we know that return to sport testing can reduce the risk of re-rupture after ACL reconstruction. So that can be one means of potentially bringing that risk down a bit. And although a lot of patients don't want to consider it, it should at least be brought up as an option is, you know, changing to a lower risk form of physical activity because it, you know, could have important implications for osteoarthritis and knee health in the future. Some patients will say, no way, all they want to do is get back to footy, get back to soccer. But others may, you know, take that information on board and, and make an informed decision to maybe change what it is that they're doing. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So, Okay, I've got one more question on ACL <laughs> sure. healing, and, yeah. and then that might be it. No, no guarantees though. Um, natural history of ACL healing, if left unattended, like not not doing a cross bracing protocol, not doing anything, just living your life. Do we have any data on that? Um, no, <laughs> it's an easy answer. The canoon. So obviously, the difference. What one's using a bracing protocol? The canoon was really quite intensive rehab. Um, from the get-go without any thought about ACL healing. So that alone is quite different. Anecdotally, you hear stories and in some of my qualitative studies about people on surgical waiting lists. Um, they've gone into the surgery. I interviewed someone recently for a study um, that was on a public waiting list, went to have the surgery, had that anesthetic and woke up and they said, oh, we 
you know, went into your knee and your ACL had to heal itself. And so what? you don't need to have that reconstruction. And that so that can happen. Um, and that was someone that wasn't doing rehab, you know, during that period. Mm. But I think, you, you know, you raise an important question as well. When we're looking at, um, when we're going to design a clinical trial, comparing healing between rehab alone and, and use of the brave. But that is also an important consideration. What if you do nothing? Mm. You know, where does that sit? But I don't know that we can really get ethics for for, for a treatment arm doing nothing when it comes to ACL injury. Um, but you yeah, know. you just have to go and do a retrospective kind of study, recruit all the people in the world that's ruptured their ACL and done nothing about it, hey, and and, and see what happens. Yeah, well, they're not likely to have the MRI data, unfortunately. But... Yeah, no, exactly. It would have, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd still be hard to do. It's. Yeah. It, it, I would bet, though, it would be nowhere near 90-odd percent. Um, and that's that's my opinion, that you don't have to speak to that, but um, that would be quite surprising to me. Yeah, but, I mean, just because they're not doing rehab, what are they doing? And mm-hmm. often in that, in that proportion of people that don't have treatment, people are doing, I'm not going to say irresponsible things, but you've got people running around on it still playing soccer without an ACL and putting themselves in those high-risk situations. Yeah, I mean, what would be interesting is if if you just said to someone, avoid these activities and come back to me in three months' time. We do not recommend this, by the way, but um, from a physiological perspective, yeah, it would be interesting to see how many of those people experience healing of, of the ACL. If you had your time over, Steph, what would you do with your ACL? I'm a little bit biased because I had a poor surgical outcome. And my knee was never great after surgery. It was always swollen. It was always painful, which, you know, is a fairly common outcome for a lot of people. Some people have great outcomes with surgery, but most people say the knee was never the same um, after an ACL injury. So, yeah, I wish someone would have given me the option of trialing rehab because I definitely would have taken that. And I may or may not have had a successful outcome. But through the surgical route, I've, I've turned up having a, a really bad outcome and now, a, you know, osteoarthritis for the rest of my life and I'll probably have to have a knee replacement by the time I'm 40 or 50 or, you know. So, but that's, of course, a biased opinion because I've been through this pathway. Had I had reconstruction at 18 and was able to play sport the rest of my life with no, no problems, then I probably would have thought it was the best treatment in the world. So, yeah. 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 We, um, yeah. We're, we're actually a lot of... I think it's relevant to point out we're developing a patient decision aid for ACL injury management at the moment. And we've done a survey of current practice in Australia to inform that. But the reason for that is to have a resource that clinicians can use with patients, but also patients can access themselves that will help to delve through all this complicated evidence and literature when it comes to ACL injury management. It'll provide the pros and cons of both options, the risks and benefits, the likely outcomes. Um, so that they can make an informed decision that aligns with their lifestyle, their preferences and their goals. So hopefully it's not too far away, but we'll make that freely available um, when it's complete. Now that will be super important. Steph, the big question now is what book are you reading or what TV show are you watching right now? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't have a lot of time. I must read, do either of those things. I can recommend a couple of books which I've enjoyed reading. The books by Norman Deutsch. So, oh, yeah, the brain that changes itself. and Yeah, yeah. and the brain's way of healing is the other one. Quite thought-provoking and I think really useful for anyone that's in uh, a clinician, especially in terms of neuroplasticity and, you know, what's possible through neuroplasticity in the brain. I guess it is quite topical today, today's talk, but I haven't really made yeah. that connection. Yeah. And also 
Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Have Daniel you read Kahneman, that one? Yeah, classic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've actually found every now and then I use an app called Blinkist. I don't yeah. know if you've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, so it summarizes books in under 15 minutes, which sounds a bit crude, but it's actually quite useful if you're busy. Um, non-fiction books. And it can also point you in the direction of books you, you know, you're really interested in. And then you mm. can spend the time to read the whole book as well. I find that quite quite useful personally. I you I use that. I use yeah. I use sorry to to interrupt there. I used uh the principles of of Kahneman's book when I'm triggered by something on the internet and I get that like immediate response and I'm like ah I just want to like comment or I want to say this and I'm like ah oh, just breathe you know is it really going to change blah 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 so <laughs> real life real life application there yeah right and there's a lot of applications for researchers and clinicians I think from that book mm. which yeah, is totally. yeah it's behavioral economics but it, yeah it applies it to real world situations yeah. doesn't it in terms of TV programs, gosh, um, <laughs> yeah, depends on the mood that I'm in, of course. But uh, if I'm in a mood, I just want something very light. I don't mind. I don't know what the genre is, but you know these sort of creative art competition shows. So yeah. there's like one um, portrait artist of the year. I don't know if you've seen it's British. Uh, Great interior design challenge. It's a, okay, cool. Yeah, a I British you, one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't watch them often, but something like that I find quite entertaining. It's cool to see how people do stuff and, you know, probably draws upon my creative side and my competitive side, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I also actually don't mind a bit of Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> Dateline is interesting too. Amazing. Yeah, I'll keep up with current affairs. So Yeah, good on you. Yep. Yeah. Q and A is not not on Netflix, guys. It's, it's a ABC here in Australia. Quite right. I do the latest movie I watched. I think it was called um, The Swimmers. Have you seen that one? Oh, it's on my to watch list. It, it looks good. Do you recommend it? I do. Yeah, definitely, definitely worth a watch. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's yeah. German, right? Well, Gosh, I don't know. If Northern it's German, European but... or something. Yep. Yeah, it follows the life of her name's Yus- Yusra Madini. I believe so yeah it follows the life of her and her refugee so it's based mm. on a true story a true story sorry her and her sister who were refugees in Syria mm. um and she's a swimmer who then ended up being a refugee moving to Germany that's probably the German the German um connection there and then swimming in the Rio Olympics for the okay. refugee team mm. so yeah it's definitely worth a watch I think it's, it's quite a good movie cool yep <laughs> any others oh god no, no. The Wiggles was, with your one-year-old? I wish it was the Wiggles. It's, um, <laughs> it's Miss Rachel. Have you heard of Miss Rachel? <laughs> no idea who that is. Oh, you, yeah, you're lucky there. No, it's, <laughs> oh, gosh. So Miss Rachel is a um, speech pathologist. I'm going to say, look, she's either Canadian or American. She has millions and millions and millions of views on all her videos. Yeah, look it up if you haven't heard of her. But my daughter absolutely loves her. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's what she likes to watch. So it's cool. educational. It's very educational. If she's a speechy, that's, that sounds great. It's better than my boy who just wants to watch monster trucks on repeat all day. So I'll take that. <laughs> uh, Steph, finally, where can people find you and your work? Are you on the socials? Where do we find all about you? Yeah, I'm mainly on Twitter. And that is where I... I post all our research papers, invitations to take part in our research, 
as well as where I'll like share our, our resources. So the free training for clinicians and patients and the patient decision aid. Um, so my Twitter, what, what do you even call it? My Twitter <laughs> handle. Yes, my Twitter handle is at Steph Bilbay. So no dots, just my name. Yes, and you can get in touch with me that way. Um, if you're interested in some of my research papers, you can Google me on Google Scholar and I'll provide links to the papers or ResearchGate. Also, I'm sure I'm on the University of Melbourne um, website as well and my links to my papers will be available there as well. Cool, and I'll link all of that in the show notes. Steph Philbay, thank you very much. Thanks, it's been really enjoyable. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Dr. Steph Philbay. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Tiribalang people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning, and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.